You're listening to The Seasoned Migrant, a show about culture, migration, and ideas, and how these have shaped our understanding of the world. I'm Yusuf Amanullah. And I'm Leonard Bout. And in this episode, we're talking about chocolate, a complex story of status, empire, and big business. So Yusuf, I'm actually very excited about this podcast episode and that you suggested chocolate. I mean, it's got colonial history, it's got business history and lots of cool things to look at critically and be nerdy about. But what was it that for you in particular drew you to this topic? So basically, um, I love chocolate, right? There's no, there's no two ways about it. No matter how many times I try and, you know, eat a little bit healthier or whatever, the moment that there's even just the slightest bite of chocolate, I spiral out of control. Um, and I remember you and I, we were in the secondhand bookstore. Um, we had been walking for about, what, like half an hour in the sweltering heat of a Dubai summer. Well, so this must have been like eight, nine years ago. That's crazy. Yeah, it was about, well, we had just finished our uh, GCSEs, I think. So I think maybe five, six years ago. And um, yeah, we found this book uh, in a secondhand bookstore. And I was intrigued because it said chocolate and it had pictures of Hershey's Kisses on the on the cover. And I said, yeah, okay, I'm going to buy this. And six years later, I decided to actually pick it up and give it a read. Um, and here we are, we find out that actually the chocolate, um, industry and the history of chocolate in general is really interesting because you've got everything, right? You've got colonialism, you've got enterprise, you've got industrialization and all of that has led to what we have as the chocolate industry today. So as I said before, the aspect that quite spoke to me of this whole chocolate story being Latin American was the part about the colonial history of of chocolate and before that happened I, I think a lot of people know about aztecs and the plays they gave coco and the coco tree and into the mythology of the aztec religion and i knew that and i think most people know that but i didn't realize how far it went the the fact that the coco tree was seen as this bridge between the heavens and the earth and all the ritual that surrounded chocolate and of course back then it wouldn't have been about the chocolate bar as we know it today but about drinking chocolate yeah so even the way that they pre prepared everything was it was quite ceremonial so back then um like you said we didn't just have this regular edible chocolate it was in the form of a drink and the reason is that you know it took it took actually centuries before we were able to create a chocolate bar um but the way they even prepared it, it was through the grinding, almost like in a pestle and mortar of dried up cocoa beans into this like rich, thick uh, paste liquid that was very difficult to stomach if you think about it. But it was extremely dense and um, full of fat. And, and I think that's probably what made it so insatiable. But even the things that they mixed into the drink were were you know a lot of scented um ingredients and and spices and i think you know um a bit more about that yeah i find this point really interesting because 
so the, the Aztecs had very particular ways of of bringing the drink together. They used dried flowers, chilies. Like who would have thought that chili chocolate over the last ten years is not a new thing? Actually, um, you know, chili, honey, all kinds of things, all kinds of spices. And what's really interesting is that there's a lot of theories about how chocolate makes its way into Europe, and there's a lot of theories about Europeans taking a long time to get accustomed to the taste of chocolate because they needed to appropriate it and make it their own before Europe could accept it as a as a as a food or as something to be consumed. And that that kind of it's kind of annoying actually because it it kind of tells us okay so we had this thing that the Aztecs cared about but it needed to be to be cleaned away and made European for it to actually enter the region and what actually happened is is really different so it wasn't the case that europeans were were taking apart the coca drink and making it their own they were actually drinking it in the exact same ways that the aztecs authentically did so once cocoa and chocolate had made its way into europe people were shipping really large quantities of of the dried flowers of the spices of the chilies that they had done uh, that the Aztecs themselves had used. And the kind of replacements that we ended up getting, so for example, people in Europe started using sugar instead of honey. And it wasn't because sugar was more palatable to the Europeans or anything like that. All these changes came about just because of convenience. And what's what's super interesting is that we 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 get this very, very very told story of of colonial powers going into colonies and of course changing everything about them pretty much and there's so much power in that obviously but we because these these stories are so pressed down upon us we neglect the fact that colonies themselves like necessarily change the cultures of the colonial powers and here we have a really clear example where Europeans took this package of, of chocolate drink and, and completely took it in for themselves and now chocolate is, is a world thing and that was that was just a product of a colony that completely changed the colonial power. Exactly. And it wasn't like it happened overnight, right? It took almost a hundred or so years before chocolate became a thing in Europe. Just to give everyone some context, 1519 was when the Spanish first arrived in Mexico and it took until the 1630s for the first chocolate houses to appear in Madrid. Exactly. And these chocolate houses weren't just for at that time, the common folk, it was for the aristocrats and for the elites, chocolate had influenced the top of society, which is quite odd if you think about it because of just how hated it was um, for so long. And we've we've seen chocolate become democratized and, and distributed to all uh, in, in these past hundred years. Um, actually 80 years, if you think about it. But even now, when these big corporations, you know, have tried to go into new markets, um, especially ones that have opened up um, as as market economies or, or quasi market economies, they've first targeted the elite. And it's interesting that chocolate has this sort of place as a luxurious um, product, even though, you know, I can go to my corner shop and buy a crunchy for 90p. But 
just that that branding that or or that association that chocolate has um it it's first with high society before it becomes anything else yeah i find this really fascinating i i have my own conjectured up theory that probably steals some thoughts from a lot of famous sociologists but i think the reason why chocolate say in europe became such a luxury luxury thing and something that really signaled being from the upper classes was because well we have to think about who would have been able firstly to come into contact with chocolate and then who could then afford it so you you have this thing not just the cocoa itself but all the spices and so on that were coming literally from across the world right so you had to be a certain level of 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 a cosmopolitan kind of person or like be exposed to that kind of thing to to, to find out about it in the first place then you had the money you had to have the money to actually buy it and then as we know people didn't actually like it because they weren't used to chocolate so not only did you have to be exposed to the whole colonial trade commerce thing you'd have to be exposed enough for you to try chocolate several times and then get accustomed to the taste and i think this this whole thing of whether you like chocolate or not and were able to afford it that this was like such a signal for me for being a member of these upper classes and then again like i think china is is interesting so we're, we're jumping 500 years but similar similar vibes like china 1978 opens up to the rest of the world and for the first time all these chocolate companies are coming in and chocolate had mostly not been a thing in china and suddenly because of changes to the economy, a middle class starts to emerge and Western products that previously were banned in the country make an appearance and they're kind of expensive. They're associated with the kind of capitalist objectives of where China is heading. And suddenly these become goods that you can associate with that kind of lifestyle, that kind of new, more prosperous, more consumerist Chinese person. And so a lot of people start buying into the idea that, yeah, if, if you buy these goods, you know, that's that's you signaling the future of the country and of, of being of a certain demographic. And I think this is pretty much exemplified by the ambassador adverts uh, that Ferrer Rocher has. So for 20 years or so, they were running this one particular TV advert. And it's basically what this party... Um, hosted by this, you know, fancy hoity-toity ambassador of um, I don't know, insert exotic country here, and it's a grandiose party. And in the middle, you've got this massive, almost like pyramid of of Ferrer Rocher's. And and the point is that it signals luxury, it signals opulence, it signals this sort of status that um, that you have if you uh, consume Ferrer Rocher's. Yeah, and actually, I really like the, the the fact that you use the word exotic because it's this massive contradiction, actually. Like, if we look back to Europe taking over chocolate, so, you know, I, I did argue that chocolate was taking as a whole package and, and from the authentic Aztec way of preparing it. But Europeans back then, they were really anxious about the fact that, yes, you know, they'd taken on this drink that was really great for them. But this drink did come from all these supposedly backward and pagan societies of the new world, you know, not the the supreme Europeans. So they tried really hard to to, to sanitize all those origins of, of, of chocolate and make it more of like a medical thing or a European thing or an upper class thing, etc. 
Um, and so now we have a case in China where companies firstly are exoticizing the chocolate, but they're not exoticizing the fact that it comes from Latin America, which would be problematic in different ways. But now it exoticizes it as being from the West and everything of like all the class stuff that you were saying it signals. And firstly, like, you know, <laughs> they're doing exactly the thing they didn't want to do in, <laughs> back in the 16th century, 17th century. And then they don't even give credit to the people that actually produce the chocolate, just the companies that manufacture it. Not to say that, you know, the local entrepreneurs and and business people have not tried to compete with these big corporations, right? So in China, Ferrer Rocher were sort of signing up all their trademarks and everything. They did it for Ferrer Rocher, but they didn't do it for their equivalent Chinese name, which would be Jinsha. And this one dairy farmer realized that they hadn't done this, so he he got the name. He used it and he started creating a much, much cheaper version of Ferrer Rocher's and those became so popular because they were so much more accessible to people rather than this really expensive product that was really premium. He could just sell it everywhere and to everyone. And that created a problem initially for Ferrer Rocher until they realized, well, maybe we should just stick to the premium side because if we start undercutting each other, you know, we'll get nowhere. And we're doing pretty well in this market, so it doesn't make sense to try and compete with these guys. But now, like, even though Frere Rocher actually tried to file a lawsuit um, to take Jinsha to, to court over the name, Jinsha actually won, from what I remember you telling me? So yeah, the, the court said that it wasn't really an issue for... Ferrer Rocher to bring up because Jinsha now had its own following and they were successful, like massively so, with their own brand. And it wasn't intellectual property for Ferrer Rocher to contest anymore because it, it fully belonged to Jinsha now. <laughs> and I think what's what's really important to note is that all these companies were were doing really well in these markets. But they were doing well because people were quite quite taken by by the idea of chocolate but not so much with the taste. Like they were taken by like the signaling, the lifestyle, the whole consumer's vibe, that was great. But Mars realized that actually the way to really go forward with with expanding the Chinese market was to get people to actually like the, the damn bars, you know? Um, so they, what they did is that they they targeted all these ads really cleverly to the, the young generations, the teenagers of the country and made you know, we, we I, at least I've seen Snickers ads in the West of like, you know, um, like trying to like appeal to like the cool youth, etc. Um, and they did similar stuff. Way to sell it, man. Yeah, man. <laughs> Get me on these marketing boards. <laughs> and <laughs> and they did a similar thing in China where like they wanted to associate Snickers with like, I mean, all kinds of themes, but including like rebellion and like teenageness. And because of that, actually, their products became became the go-to for a lot of young people who then obviously grew up and then they became loyal to the brand which was cool but then yeah like again as much as we're talking about people in china it's important to remember that when these groups came into china people like cadbury were like let's supply the whole country and for them that meant one billion people but when we're looking at just how many people actually lived in cities that was 30 percent of the population 
Um, and cities obviously mattered because how are you going to distribute bars that need to be refrigerated to the middle of, of the country? Then you had the other issue of like who could actually afford and out of those 300 million, you even had to like whittle it down to 100. And again, it was it was something that was reserved for the middle classes that as China developed and its economy strengthened, the middle class as a number and what that meant for the country became much bigger. But still, it was it was quite restricted. And I think that's, that's again, contradictory because when we're looking at Hershey's making uh, making a lot of profits in the Chinese market because of a lack of access and because it signaled exclusivity, you know, their origins were completely different. And it was all about democratizing the bar. Yeah, for sure. Um, for many reasons as well, though, because, um, I mean, Hershey's, Hershey's hasn't been successful abroad just because no one likes the taste of Hershey's other than Americans, pretty much. Um, and that's because of how the Hershey's bar is actually made, right? So in the process, somewhere along the line, butyric acid is formed in the chocolate. And butyric acid is what gives vomit its smell and taste. So that seems like a massive oversight. <laughs> yeah, I mean, apparently, apparently they never even noticed it, but it can't I, I just don't understand how it can be that the rest of the world can tell you straight up we really don't like this for for you know the reason that it just doesn't taste good but you guys but like it tastes like vomit you, know, guys. The, you, you as the founder yeah you, you as the founder are like yeah this 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 sells this works um but i think for for hershey's in particular there were two main reasons why it succeeded so much and the first one was it was the first one to market um and then the second thing is that um it was well the the founder was to a very large extent the sort of utopian capitalist vibe he was like a an overgrown child in a lot of ways he he was very his his views on um how he saw the world were very pure and so he wanted to sort of just bring chocolate to everyone and that's how he that's why he created the 5 cent chocolate bar uh, that made hershey's what it is today and so um it's this democratization that helped chocolate become not just this exclusive um, flavor that only some could could enjoy, but rather the whole of a country. And actually, I was quite impressed by Hershey's commitment to this five cent bar that even if cocoa prices fluctuated, he was like, no, 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 I'm going to stick to the fact that it has to be five cents. And he would change the weight of the bar and do all kinds of things. Um, just to make sure that people who could still could still purchase it, you know? Yeah. I mean, it really backfired at one point. Um, so what happened was, I mean, he could do that to a very, well, when Milton Hershey was around, um, the founder of Hershey, he could do that to um, a degree that didn't really affect the bar as such because there were a lot of price controls on um, these commodities like cocoa. But then, uh, you know, the the wars sort of dry up a little. And so there's no need to control all these commodity prices. And so the, the price of cocoa shoots up. Okay. And so in, um, you know, the seventies ish, you've got the situation where the five cent bar is just not a viable product anymore. And so you know, it, it either has to be like almost like a, a, as, as thin as a piece of paper or, or, you know, you've got nothing. Right. And 
people started making fun of it as well. Like there were actually like, I don't know, newspaper columns or, or these like magazine, you know, those, those uh, cartoons that you get in newspapers, like they used to make fun of that because of just how, how thin they were getting. Like one day you'd walk in, you get a nice thick chunky bar of Hershey's and then the next day you'd get like nothing. And so they were getting particular pressure from their main competitor, Mars, because um, the Milky Way bar is made of um, chocolate, but it's also made of this nougat and caramel. So chocolate, even though it's an important ingredient for the Milky Way bar, it it's not the most important part, or it's not it's not um, you know the only thing in that in that bar. So they could they could take the the price hikes, and in fact they did, and 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 even did more. Like they they increased the size of the bar. Hershey's decided to sort of slightly increase the size of their um, Hershey's bar, but also charge double the price at ten cents, and this like created. A massive hoo-ha and everyone was like oh well i don't want to pay double for basically no difference in in the size or quite frankly what you what you used to be giving me as a five cent bar now you're just charging me 10. and it was only really when um hershey's kind of woke up and realized like oh okay we can't just rely on this five cent bar anymore we don't have this first mover advantage that we had back in the day of milton hershey we don't um have almost the same vision and Mars is really taking us to the cleaners because that that guy and those guys in that corporation have this empire building mindset. Um, we're getting, you know, we're getting seriously shafted here. Uh, and it led to a lot of rivalry um, within America in, in particular, just because Hershey's is nowhere else to be seen. So what I find really crazy about all of this is that for the beginnings of the rivalry, at least, Hershey was actually supplying the chocolate to Mars and to every single other confectioner out there in America. And I love how this all changes just basically because disgruntled teenager essentially of, of Forrest Mars goes on this gap year, on this crusade to like prove himself to his family, sets up this Milky Way trademark in the UK and tries to do that for a bit, learns more about chocolate and the old chocolate houses of Europe. And then on his way back, somehow finds himself in Spain during the Civil War and realizes that the soldiers there are having this candy-coated chocolate that is cool because firstly it doesn't melt, but also it's really tasty. And it's something that has never, ever been done in the US. So he comes back to the US and finds the confidence to just stroll into the Hershey's headquarters and just proposes this new exciting product called M&M's candy coated chocolate and he's like yeah we'll work together on it we'll have your president's son work on this it'll be great fast forward seven years and Forrest had just been basically a horrendous person to every single person involved from Hershey's on this he creates the bad blood and the rivalry that exists today he then stages a coup to oust his own step family from the board of the the Mars company and once he assumes all the power in the company then cuts off Hershey's as a supplier of their chocolate in some kind of last mic drop move. And, you know, how much damage can you do as a single individual is just beyond me. I mean, the whole the whole story of chocolate in America just screams daddy issues. Like, there's no other way to explain it. But both, both um, Hershey's and Mars, so they have pretty similar 
backgrounds um you know both their both their families struggled a lot um and were extremely poor like almost destitute they couldn't pay anything uh they couldn't pay the bills they couldn't pay for heating they could i think um there's this one story of um hershey milton hershey you know trying to sell uh these weird wacky inventions that his father used to make door to door and he was um he was barefoot and that's the situation that they were in but the way that they tried to overcome that and the way that they went about um almost avenging that situation were they were completely um you know opposing and while milton wanted to create almost like this one massive big family with his company and almost just create this peace and harmony around uh, like with people um be it between his parents who were you know had a very rocky relationship or himself and just everyone else around him it was always about the bigger picture of people and making um making a company that worked for its people and then on the flip side you have mars who again his father was a really struggling like penny candy maker and I think he got pretty much like he was he self-exiled from like three different states because he owed money to the point where you know even in all the new states that he tried like he could he really struggled to get any sort of money because of that his parents divorced and he was he he was living with his uh grandparents and I think rather than avenging the situation it was more about avenging like the situation his father put him in so there was this sense of his father did this to him. And so because of that, his it was more of like an I'll show you um, attempt. And even when they sort of reconciled, um, you know, Forrest and his, his father, the way that they reconciled was very much in a very business professional relationship. Like the first time that they met after years, they literally just got down to business and that's how they thought about the Milky Way bar. Um, and so that was a really fractious, you know, father-son bond as well. That's why he went on this uh, gap year. And that's why he came back and he avenged because I think um, he had this chip on his shoulder. Whereas for Milton, it was, it was more, you know, I need to fix whatever's happening with my parents and I'm going to do the best. And he, he always wanted to, he always wanted his parents to be okay again, even though they had pretty much they had divorced, but not divorced because of um, the fact that they were Mennonites. And so divorce just wasn't a thing in their, in their uh, religion. So, um, but, but they were very much, you know, um, estranged from each other. And it seems to me that Milton Hershey is just an all round great guy. <laughs> if we look at yeah. his, his factory, so he built this town called Hershey, Pennsylvania, that you can still visit actually. And yeah, it was meant to be basically a worker's utopia where everyone was very properly taken care of as an employee. The town itself provided housing, which was like a really high quality compared to all the other employment settlements that were just across the US in the beginning of the 20th century. And yeah. there were even theaters and public parks, all kinds of things that that signaled upper class neighborhoods. Yeah, and these theaters and public parks, like the theaters were filled with with some of the top Broadway shows, like not a single, you know, 
dime was sort of taken away from this place, at least at the start. Like he poured in a lot of time and investment. And also fun fact, actually, I read about this the other day. If you're a football fan, Chelsea's Christian Pulisic actually was um, raised in Hershey, Pennsylvania. So still still uh, quite a relevant town today. And I think the cherry on the top for Milton's legacy was the Milton Hershey School. And I know you're more passionate about this than I am. So why don't you go ahead and explain? Oh, yeah. I mean, I love it because I hope one day to do something relatively similar. I hope that I'm I'm blessed enough to be put in that position. But it's like, so with the death of his wife at a pretty young age um, and with no children, Milton Hershey really wanted to give back and and do good. And um, the way that he did this was by building a school um, that that basically took in only orphans. And, you know, if you think back to 1920s, 1930s America, right? Orphans, they'd just be left by the system. They'd be forgotten by the system if it weren't for, you know, institutions like this. And so he was giving these people who would otherwise have a very, very difficult life an opportunity to um, be something. And again, right, he poured so much money into that. He he never, he, he always made sure that they weren't um, uh, like, they weren't deprived of anything. And even when he like drove by uh, the school grounds, he, you know, the kids would run up to the car, say hi. Like he was this massive father figure. And he was this father figure that, you know, it lost it for like two or three generations between uh, before people sort of got tired of, of mentioning Milton Hershey, right? Like that aura of Milton Hershey was always there for about two or three generations. Like there were always questions of what would he do? Um, and I only think that has changed recently. But even so, right, he actually, towards the end of his life, um, gave all of his shareholding in Hershey to the school in a trust. So now Hershey's, any profits that Hershey's makes and any dividends that Hershey's distributes, it goes primarily to that school. So that there's almost this extra need for Hershey's to do well every year because if they don't, then these kids would suffer. And I just think that that's quite, that, that's such a generous gesture. And of course, you know, looking back, we, we, we always, you know, sort of rose tint or glorify people's lives, but there's no doubt that that's something that's really, that's, that's quite a big thing to do. Um, I think, and and it, it it probably also changed a lot about how people think about their own businesses and how they treat their employees. Because as you were mentioning, a lot of the time, the way that businesses were sort of set up was they made sure that employees' lives revolved around the work, right? So they, they lived close by, um, you know, so there was no excuse to to miss work, they had certain benefits, but those benefits were, you know, effectively indirectly making sure that they kept working uh, and, and there was no reason not to work. But at least for the start, Hershey, Pennsylvania was not 
built to supply the factory. Rather, it was the other way around. The factory was used to fund the actual town. So if the if the factory and the company did well, then um, the whole the whole town did well, and and the money was always reinvested into that town. What makes me really happy is that you know we clearly really like Milton, but yeah. unfortunately Mars just because they're kind of horrible starts with this blood feud between both of them and then they get this really golden opportunity to head back at them with with et yeah i mean i don't know how mars passed up on this opportunity but basically what happened was that universal studios calls up mars asks them okay guys in this one scene of et um, we want that basically the kid is trying to lure the this alien back to his house. And the way he does this is through putting candies on on the floor. And well, so this must have sounded, sounded so crazy. Like now we can, I mean, we know E.T., so we know that makes sense. But in this board meeting, they would have been like, so there's this alien, right? And like, he's coming from outer space and this kid and, and the chocolate. And he'd just be like, um, okay. Yeah. And it's, it's not just that, it's, but it's also like, so there's this alien. It's like, can we see this alien? No, not yet. And when they do see it, it's like the ugliest thing in the world. Like it's such a, it's not even like a friendly, like joyous alien. It's like, it's, it looks it looks like, you know, a very shriveled up thing, like, but, um, and so, yeah, so, so th this candy that was supposed to be used to lure in, in the alien was M&M's. Mar said no. Um, and so Universal Studios was like, okay, fine. So who are we going to call now? Okay, let's call Hershey's. Hershey's got the call and, and they were like, okay, rather than Mars, can we use your Reese's Pieces? And Hershey's sort of, like the the company sort of thought about it. This was quite a while after uh, Milton Hershey passed away. So the organization had completely like reshuffled and there were a lot of, you know, incomings and outgoings in terms of people. And Reese's Pieces was kind of like, you know, the way that you would describe a Reese's Pieces to someone at that time was like, it's like M&M's. But if you have to describe it as your competitor, you know, people are just going to be like, <laughs> why don't I just go for M&M's? <laughs> exactly, <okay>? right? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, like, what are you going to do at that point? Um, and this seemed like one of those really high risk, but if it were, if it pulls off seriously high returns sort of um, gambles. And... So they said, yeah, okay, let's do it. Um, they used Reese's Pieces and and uh, they said, okay, we'll provide like a million dollars to the actual film to fund the film. But at the same time, what you will do is that you will give us exclusive rights um, to also use the the um, like E.T. Uh, name and, and all the branding and everything um, for our own promotions as well. And... You know, we know how well E.T. did. This was huge. And it did something like triple the sales of Reese's Pieces in like two weeks of the film's release. Like it was massive. And it gave this new lease of life to to Hershey's that I think they needed at that time. So being the the more nerdy chocolate person between the two of us, what do you feel is, is the future for chocolate? I think that 
a lot of it now has to do with the supply chain, <laughs> which sounds as sexy <laughs> as 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 it possibly can. But but what I mean is, you know, in the '90s we had this major expose of a lot of companies, a lot of big companies, of their treatment of employees and suppliers, right? So you had Nike with their factories, Apple as well. Uh, you had um, and 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 with the chocolate industry, you had the actual cocoa farmers. You know, so while um, cocoa originated from Latin America, by the time it you know took uh, Europe by storm, the British and the French they were like, okay, we want this even more. Like we're hooked on. And when the Spanish lost their their colonies, Britain were like, no. You know we're not we're not going to let go of of uh, this chocolate. We love it too much. So what they did was that they went to their colonies, them in France. They went to their colonies in Africa and West Africa, and they made them produce cocoa, um, you know, in very intensive methods. And that's why West Africa is the largest um, producer of cocoa, even to this day. And it has unfortunately still a lot of these colonial um, methods used. Also, I find this such a mad story. So we have chocolate from Latin America being picked up by Europeans who then somehow filter down to America, who then are like, yes, we're going to enter the Chinese market, which by this point, they're not even using Latin American chocolate anymore. It's now West African chocolate, you know, globalization <laughs> in one product. I mean, that just shows you the brilliance of chocolate. That's why I love it. Like that, yeah, I, mean, I guess brilliance I of chocolate and also like, you know, the power of colonialism and, <laughs> yeah, uh, that's true. Okay. and bad stuff. Yeah, that's true. I, I don't really think about that when I'm eating a chocolate bar. But yeah, I mean, ever since reading that book, it, every bite is just that little bit bittersweet. Um, but I think from that perspective, you know, we've got fair trade, um, which is good to an extent, but it's not enough. So what really matters now is that having that close relationship with your suppliers and making sure that whatever is happening is ethical, that they're being treated fairly, that they're being paid fairly, that from an environmental perspective, you're not putting too much of a pressure on the earth's resources. And then on top of that, also focusing on the origins of whatever you're, you're producing and giving, um, necessary weight to that and i think i i just think to people like hotel chocolat who are doing a really great job with that um to a very large extent um where they have these close connections with their supply chain where they're a, where they're more a cocoa grower turned chocolate company so for them that connection is very close and i think in terms of where chocolate is going I don't think it's anything really to do with tastes or different um, combinations because, again, right, there's only so much you can do with three or four ingredients. But I think it's that part where people, you know, feel good, not just from a taste perspective, but also know that whatever they're eating, it, it, didn't, it doesn't have this exploitative baggage. But what about you? What do you think uh, comes next? Actually, this point about pressure on chocolate companies to become more ethical it's quite cool um, because it's, I think we live in an exciting time where when there's issues like this that demand attention and, and demands change to make things better, um, 
suddenly i think because of a number of things coming together but you can throw into that list the fact that we're so much more connected than ever which makes it really aware of things and the fact that we do have i don't know mass markets for things like chocolate that people can come together and like really push for change as consumers like i, I don't think fair trade would have been particularly possible like 30 years ago 40 years ago um but yeah, and then that's on the point of fair trade. I think we're a more empowered generation than ever. Like, for example, McDonald's not having plastic stores anymore. That's huge. Um, and obviously it's not enough. McDonald's and Starbucks both. Yeah, and obviously it's not enough. And I think we've been focusing too much on on single items of disposable cutlery and plastics and so on. Uh, I mean, obviously it's a big step, but the, the symbolic value of the fact that people could band together around the world and be like, hey, like this is really not necessary and extremely harmful. So please change. And they actually did. And that's cool. And I, I think that's a similar story for chocolate. Again, it's not gone far enough and not everyone has implemented those things, but we have this really healthy, effective pressure that we can put on on companies. And so that's my thoughts on, on this fair trade and exploitative methods question. Yeah, I mean, definitely we're in a generation now where communication between any big corporation and you know, the, the consumers, like it's two way before it was only one, uh, you know, the, the corporation giving us television adverts, uh, and, and making it and almost like, you know, doing a hard sell, um, for their products. But now we also have a say in their actions. And I think that like in McDonald's, like in Starbucks is going to happen everywhere, including Mars and Hershey's and pretty much every industry. So it's a really exciting time that we live in. It's daunting for sure, but it's also exciting. And, you know, we always hope that there's like better um, outcomes on the horizon. Thank you so much for listening to the episode and making it this far. We've got many more exciting stories coming up in future episodes and on our Instagram page at seasoned.migrant. If you have any thoughts, any comments or any ideas for future topics, please send us a message. Also, we love feedback. So let us know what you loved and how we could improve. You've been listening to the Seasoned Migrant Podcast. We'll be back next week. Goodbye.